For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the deaths of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war. I me, I see the ruin of my house. The tiger now hath seized the gentle hind. Insulting tyranny begins to jut upon the innocent and aweless throne. What is a man? Sure he made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. O oh, my dear father, restoration hang thy medicine on my lips, and let this kiss repair those violent harms that my two sisters have in thy reverence made. I am a king that find thee, and I know, tis not the balm, the scepter and the ball, the sword, the mace, the crown imperial, the throne he sits on, nor the pomp that beats on the high shore of the world. This is the mighty history of the British Empire, a people living on a tiny island in the North Atlantic Ocean, built an empire that circled the earth, and brought freedom and education to languishing millions. This empire was blessed by Almighty God and one of his best educated teachers, William Shakespeare. Shakespeare has educated some of the greatest leaders of all time, such as Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill. We shall never surrender. Our troubled world needs a fresh crew of nation-building leaders. Are you ready to step up to the challenge? Welcome to the exciting classroom of Shakespeare's royal education with host Dennis Leap. Well, greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Shakespeare's royal education. Well, I'm really excited to uh, share a comment with you today. This is, uh, uh, actually, I don't know exactly where it is from, but it is definitely from the United States. But uh, this person says, Hello, Mr. Leap. Thank you for adding this God-inspired class to your busy schedule. Deep thinking is a skill we all need. My Pelican copy of Shakespeare's plays is due to arrive at the end of January. So, uh, sorry it's taking so long for it to uh, to get to you, but I have a feeling you uh, took my advice and bought it from ABE Books. Hopefully you've, uh, you're getting a good used copy, and I think you will find it uh, very, very beneficial to you. So uh, I just wanted to say that um, uh, my schedule is busy, but I love talking about Shakespeare. I could talk about Shakespeare probably all day long. And so to me, this is, uh, this is more like fun than it is like a lot of hard work, even though it is a lot of hard work to pull it all together. Now, one thing I want to do before I, before I begin is I just want to apologize that this, this podcast is airing a week late. Now, unfortunately, the, uh, the cron, I call it, not just Omicron, but the cron caught me for Three, four work days and a weekend. So about five days I was fighting, fighting the beast. And, uh, but so are a lot of other people in Oklahoma. So I guess it's just the way it goes. But I believe what the experts say, the experts are saying that if you get Omicron, you're going to have natural immunity. And I am certainly in favor of natural immunity. And, uh, uh, again, it's everybody's decision to take the vaccine. I am not. So uh, uh, my health is really actually pretty good. Uh, 
Now, on our last podcast, I did give you some pointers on how to get ready to read a Shakespeare play. Now, if this is the first time you're joining the podcast, and I know there are new listeners uh, each time, uh, be sure to go back and listen to the first three podcasts. That's really the that lays the groundwork for why the podcast exists, and it lays the groundwork for how we're going to work. Now, what what I thought I'd do though is just uh, I just want to briefly recount two points to help you get started with me today. Now, uh, this is uh, in some ways the way we're taping this is a little bit of an experiment, and so uh, we'll see how this experiment works. But so far, I think it's been working really well. Now, before you start reading a Shakespeare play, for those of you that heard the last couple podcasts, you know, point number one is always familiarize yourself with the story behind the play. And that's where the Charles Lamb and Mary Lamb book comes into play. It's because it just gives you the storylines to to uh, some of the Shakespeare plays we're going to be we'll be covering. Second thing is. Also, familiarize yourself with the cast of characters. And so today, we're going to be uh, uh, getting into the play. We're going to be discussing those characters. And so, uh, uh, of course, I've done this many years. So in some ways, I don't, uh, I don't forget them. But then every now and then, I've got to go back and check my notes and say, well, who's that guy? One of the things I've done for you today is uh, you can find the storylines and brief discussions of the cast of characters at Spark Notes Online. Now, what I have done is I have posted this address for you on the podcast at Twitter, and uh, uh, or I should say the podcast webpage or the podcast page. And remember, the title of that page is Shakespeare's Royal Education. So if you just type that in, it will take you to the podcast. And you can click on the little box that will take you right to uh, the, the, the uh, Spark Notes online. And it's all about King Lear. And the first thing you open up, I think you would just open up to a summary of the play and then the cast of characters. So that should make it easy for you. Now, for today's program, what I want to do is I want us to begin reading the play. Notice I said us. So hopefully all of you out there have a copy of King Lear that you can have in front of you. And remember also last time I suggested maybe you get a, yourself a, a, a notebook so you can keep notes from every podcast. I think that would really help you as well. And so, uh, so but we do want to start reading today. And so if you, if you have that book handy, just get, get, get it and get ready to start reading with me. Now, before I begin to start reading the play, I always like to do that tell you i'm going to read the play today then i say now before i read the play but i I think you'll understand why i'm doing it this way so but before i i uh am going to start reading the play what what i want to do is give you a little bit of a let's say a mini lecture that i would give to my uh shakespeare class which by the way starts this coming friday so uh i'm going to be really prepared for them this year you know covering shakespeare plays in the podcast and then with them but but uh, the, the point is, Shakespeare does have a structure that he follows in every play. And it's, it's uh, just something you need to learn, especially as you're going to be hearing me instruct you from the radio. It's good that you understand that structure. And, you're, and, and there's just little cues that you can use to help you so that you can find out where I'm at, where you can stay where I'm at uh, in, in the, the reading. So, so each, each play... No matter what play it is, it has five acts. Now, 
uh, the, there is no set number of scenes. So if, if you look at Richard III, which we're going to be doing much later in this uh, podcast, maybe uh, six to nine months from now, um, that is one of the longest plays of Shakespeare. And if you look at your King Lear book, it's really pretty small. But when you get to the Richard III book, it's really fat because it has multiple scenes. Now, in King Lear, you probably the, the, the lowest number of scenes you have per act is probably three, just three separate scenes. But also, you, the only, the, let's say the largest number you might have is just six scenes. And so it's, that's, it's really a small book. And uh, uh, so it, it, it's, it's a, I think it's good to start out with this one. Now, if you look at the top right of your first page where you actually see the lines of the play, notice there, there's a little notation just right above the first line. And what it is, it has a capital letter I and a dot and a one. And that's a notation. All that means is act one, scene one. But if you look down the side of the right side, then you're going to see the number of lines or the number of the lines and they're 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 uh they're not necessarily perfect but that at least it could help you if i say let's go to act one scene one line 10 you're going to know where to go in the book and so so uh it's just uh i think good for you to know that now some of you may have already known that maybe some of you didn't so if you did i don't want to insult you but if you didn't i want you to thank me and so so that's the way it goes so uh uh, but but anyway, it lets you know where you are. It's going to let me know where you are, and it's going to let, let let you know where I am. And so uh, remember, this is a this is a joint effort on this podcast. We're a team together. And even though I can't see you, probably a lot of you know me, and uh, uh, that's a good thing. All right. So now there's one other point of structure that I want to talk about, especially with this play, uh, uh, King Lear. Now, <clears throat> there is a unique structure to King Lear that isn't used in any other of Shakespeare's plays. And it really is kind of, uh, I think it's kind of remarkable. Now, there are many people out there that say King Lear's Shakespeare, um, I, I guess I should say King, Shakespeare's King Lear, they see it as the greatest play. And uh, for me, I, I wouldn't say it's my, my most favorite. I'd say it's probably second to Hamlet. But there is something really remarkable about King Lear, and I think he did it in such a genius way that, uh, you know, it does give us a lot of insights into some really deep lessons we all really, all of us really need to learn. And uh, I'm going to show you as we go through the play, it even really speaks to our time today. We have to, we have to understand that. Now, <clears throat> not everybody likes this play. Uh, let me just give you some, some examples. Um, the Irish playwright, George Bernard Shaw, loved King Lear. And, of course, he's, he's a very famous playwright uh, from Ireland. And, uh, yay, Ireland. That's why I've been having Irish background. Um, and he really did influence uh, you know, writing plays. But then the Russian writer, Leo Tolstoy, did not like this play. And in fact, he hated it so much, he published a 100-page critical essay against it in 1906. <laughs> and so so in, in many ways, some of the scenes in here are truly tragic, and they're unbearable. And even when, when uh, you know, after Shakespeare actually produced the play and wrote it himself, th there's even some other 
you know, playwrights and uh, theater owners that really felt that they didn't have the the right effects to really produce a good play. And it's really almost taken to modern times to be able to really show what what uh, Shakespeare was doing with the play. And uh, as we go along, I'm going to uh, study a little bit ahead of time and see if I can find a great film for you to watch about King Lear. And I think that will help you as we read it as well. Now, one other thing about King Lear, it was banned from the English stage during the reign of King George III. And the reason why it was done that way is because King the George was plagued with periods of insanity. Uh, when he died, he was both blind and deaf. And uh, uh, the, 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 the uh, theater companies felt that his mental failings were too much like Lear's, and they didn't want to embarrass the family. So, so I think that's pretty unique in itself. Okay, so, so what makes the play really unique is that there are two plots running consecutively. And this is the only play that Shakespeare's produced or written where there's a plot and a subplot. And uh, the, the thing is, I want you to, to think about this from the very beginning of our reading, is that King Lear is not just a story about an old king. And, uh, you know, some, you could get that, you know, by the title, or you could think that way by, because of the title. But really, the play has much bigger lessons that we can draw upon. And, and he, what he does is he, his genius, Shakespeare was able to accomplish this by interweaving the story of Lear and his daughters with that of Gloucester and his sons. And we're, we're going to be talking about this quite a bit as we go through the play. And we'll unpack these invaluable lessons as we go through it. So uh, uh, let's begin reading now. Now, uh, I just want to tell you, for today's reading, I will not be doing all of it by myself. There are some former students and longtime friends of mine from England who are reading the lines of the different characters to add a spark of interest. And so, so in other words, uh, as we're reading, I'll be reading, but then there are these uh, wonderful people that have taken the time to be taped and uh, study the lines and understand them and and, and uh, read them for you. Um, you know they they uh, they've really done a lot of work, but uh, um, I am going to be speaking for the character Gloucester throughout the play, and I, I'll just apologize for that right now because I am not going to sound at all British. But uh, you should follow along with them as we read. So in other words. Even as they're reading the lines, just don't sit there and listen. Make sure you have your book open and you're reading it along with them as they're, they're doing. All right. So, uh, so we're going to start reading in, uh, capital I dot one. So uh, it's too bad you can't answer me, but that means we're at act one, scene ones. And, uh, uh, the, the thing is, I have a lot of class notes written in my book. And so, so I want you to get the feeling that you're you're sitting in my classroom. All right. So so as I'm beginning to read and, and how the scene opens, I just want you to uh, 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 again. It's Act One, Scene One. It's in page three of my book, and it's if you have the Pelican book, it should be page three for you as well. But as the scene opens, the characters Kent and Gloucester are waiting for the king to arrive at the court, and uh, you know they're they're having their own discussion. But, but here's the thing is, the king has called this meeting 
but he has not told anybody what it's about. And so there's a, there's a little bit of mystery in their minds. And so uh, the first person to really speak is Kent. I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall. Now, Gloucester responds, It did always seem so to us, but now, in the division of the kingdom, it appears not which of the dukes he values most. For equalities are so weighed that curiosity in neither can make choice of either's moiety. Now, this is, uh, these two lines are packed full of a punch. And, and I want you to realize that Shakespeare is just punching us. He's hitting us right up front with where he's going in this play. And, or maybe I could say part of where he's going in the play. Now, if you remember back to the last podcast, we talked a little bit about the history. And, of course, he, he wrote this play and drafted it for King James, the first of England. Now, remember, he was James the sixth of Scotland, and he wanted to unite the whole realm. That's been a problem in that area of the world almost since time began. And, of course, I'm exaggerating there. But King James the first, as soon as he took the throne, he had a divided realm, and he wanted to get that problem solved as soon as he could. Now, um, he had two sons. One was the Duke of Albany, and one was the Duke of Cornwall. And James himself had been a Duke of Albany. So when you see the Duke of Albany here, it really means Scotland. And when you see the word Duke of Cornwall, it really means England. And then Gloucester says, look, there's, there's this division of the kingdom. And so, so maybe Gloucester did have some insight into what was, what was going on. But, but essentially what Shakespeare did is he threw this political issue right out in front of the king and, uh, and also before the audience. And so, so when you first start reading the play, you think, well, what is, what does this have to do with anything? And, uh, that's why you need to understand some of that background. And so, so even the word moiety in, uh, in line six, is uh, it's really a different different kind of word, but but here's what it, the the basic definition is: a part or a portion, especially a lesser share. So when we look at how how Shakespeare used this word, what he does here in King Lear, he was trying to to show that it was hard to understand which of the son-in-law was more favorite than the other, and the reason is that there was there was like there was this share or there was this portion. And the the way Lear had worked it out is the portion seemed equal. Now, if he had, if he had favored Albany, he would have given him a larger position or maybe a larger share. If he had liked Cornwall, he would have given him a larger share. And it looks like he was ready to give them an equal share. So, so it just, it t- talked about, well, there's no favoritism in, in, uh, in, in the uh, in the in the uh, kingdom, so so anyway, that comes right out in front. And again, uh, when I first read this play, I just sat there in confusion. What are they talking about? And so so we can really fix that if we re- just really pay attention to some of the history. Notice then, Kent says, "Is this not your son, my lord?" And Gloucester responds, His breeding, sir, hath been at my charge. I have so often blushed to acknowledge him that now I am braced to it. I cannot conceive you. <laughs> and so, so, uh, that's another, uh, to me, this line, it's again, it's, it's line 11 uh, in the play. 
certainly, I can't conceive you as a play on words. I mean, obviously, if this is Gloucester's son, he had to be conceived. But essentially what, what uh, Ken is saying is, I don't understand what you're saying to me. And so, so essentially what, what Kent didn't know is that the son he's meeting was an illegitimate son. And, uh, or as it's, uh, you know, so, so often said right in the play, he was a bastard son. And so then Gloucester goes on to explain it. He says, sir, this young fellow's mother could whereupon she grew round wombed and had indeed, sir, a son for her cradle ere she had a husband for her bed. Do you smell a fault? I cannot wish the fault undone, the issue of it being so proper. And so, so uh, Kent believes this son, whose name is, is Edmund, is quite a handsome young man. And he looks like he's a very capable young man. Kent says, no, I don't see a fault. But then Gloucester, I think, is, is somewhat ashamed by what's happened. And he goes on to say, but I have a son, sir, by order of law. And that means a legitimate son. Some year elder than this, who is yet no dear in my account. He says, so I do have a legitimate son. But, but this son I love just as much as I love my legitimate son. And so he's trying to, to defend himself here. He says, though this knave came something saucily to the world before he was sent for, yet his mother was fair. There was, um, a good sport at his making and, and the whoresome must be acknowledged. Do you know this noble gentleman, Edmund? No, my lord. Gloucester then says, my lord of Kent, remember him hereafter as my honorable friend. And so, so essentially Gloucester's introducing Edmund to Kent and he says, look, Remember him hereafter as my honourable friend. My services to your lordship. I must love you and sue to know you better. Edmund is really all not, uh, he's really not very happy about this whole conversation that's been going on here. Sir, I shall study deserving. In some ways, it's hard to see the sarcasm there, but, but he's being very sarcastic. One, he hates being called a bastard. Two, he uh, he's very jealous of his legitimate brother, and and uh, you know he goes on to say, well, look, when he says, "Sir, I shall study deserving," I'll try to make myself worthy of your knowledge, and it's it's very sarcastic. And then Gloucester steps in again, and he says, "Hey, he hath been out nine years, and away he shall again." So so in other words, he's been away from Gloucester for nine years. But now, uh, now he's back, but he's going to be going away again. And then Gloucester says, oh, the king is coming. And so, so it's essentially what we have here then is the, this meeting is going to be, uh, begun. And, uh, uh, if you, if you look right there on your book, it'll begin, you can see who's, who's come to the meeting. And I'll just read it for you, uh, since some of you may not have your book yet. So here's who enters. Uh, uh, there's uh, King Lear enters, then the Dukes of Cornwall and Albany enter, then his daughter Goneril enters, then Reagan enters, that's his other daughter, and then Cordelia enters, and then there's also other attendants there. So there's a big group at this meeting. And uh, Lear, uh, you know, uh, Gloucester is one of his, his main agents or assistants there. And uh, Lear says, attend the Lords of France and Burgundy, Gloucester. And so uh, Gloucester responds, I shall, my lord. So, so they go out. He's going out to get the king of France and the, the Duke of Burgundy to come into this meeting as well. Meantime, we shall express our darker purpose. Give me the map there. 
Know that we have divided in three our kingdom, and tis our fast intent to shake all cares and business from our age, conferring them on younger strengths, while we, unburdened, crawl toward death. Our son of Cornwall, and you, our no less loving son of Albany, we have this hour a constant will to publish our daughter's several dowers, that future strife may be prevented now. The princes, France and Burgundy, great rivals in our youngest daughter's love, long in our court have made their amorous sojourn, and here are to be answered. Tell me, my daughters, since now we will divest us both of rule, interest of territory, cares of state, which of you, shall we say, doth love us most? That we our largest bounty may extend, where nature doth with merit challenge. Goneril, our eldest born, speak first. And so, so let me just talk about this, but this a little bit. And uh, again, these these are very important lines. You don't want to just gloss over them. You want to uh, you want to understand them. And so, so when he says there, meantime we shall express our darker purpose, he means this has been a secret plan. He's been thinking about this for a while, and he's kept it pretty quiet, and that's why no one has, has uh, known what's going on. If you, if you were to see the play done live, you would see all the attendees looking at each other saying, what is he talking about? And of course, he has a map. He's already divided up England. And, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's divided it into three, to three parts. And so it's not by coincidence that he has three daughters. So he's planning to split up the kingdom or divide the kingdom in three parts. And again, if you look at the politics, and if you think about James, James I of England is sitting there, and he's really concerned that he's, he's ruling a realm divided, what's he going to think of this? He's going to start thinking, what is this play all about? And so, so it, it uh, to me, it's really, it's really a part of, um, you know, the genius part of it all. But notice, notice what he says there. Um, uh, it, it says that he wants to shake all cares and business from his age. In other words, he's tired of being a king. Now, uh, again, you know that there's a lot of people feel like, well, he's just a legendary king, and. Uh, um, you know that this is all this is all legend by King Arthur, and so so a lot of people, you know, a, a lot of scholars just uh, they love the story and they love the message, they love the, the the lessons behind it, but they don't believe King Lear ever existed, and yet if you if you look, I looked at an Oxford version of the play Lear, and they said Lear and Cordelia have been in the line of kings. Uh, for forever, for a long time, you know. It's, it's so it's like they're in the histories. You know, if, if you if you look at the the history of the line of kings for Britain, Lear's there. And so, so I am not a historian. Um, you know, I I, uh, I uh, do know that there are a lot of people today want to rewrite history. A lot of historians, you know, a lot of historians. Um, you know, even the Hollandshed Chronicles, Hollandshed's Chronicles, uh, until just recently, people didn't think they were very smart enough. But Shakespeare used these sources. He uses Geoffrey of Monmouth's source. We talked about that last time. And he used Hollandshed's Chronicles. And he certainly believed uh, that the, the title of this play is The True Chronicle History of King Lear and His Daughters. 
if, if that's not the title of uh, this play, it was certainly the play he used as a as a background. But uh, but anyway, um, he he says that he wants to shake all cares and business from his age. Uh, Harold Bloom tells us that uh, they think he was about eighty years old. Uh, they would have been eighty years old, you know, according to the story. He would have been in his eighties, and then also according to the story, his wife would have just have died. You never saw, you never see a, a mom Lear or a Mrs. Lear uh, in this play. But but he's uh, he's tired of being king, and he said, "Okay, I'm going to dump this to to some younger people," and then he said, "Unburdened, I'm going to crawl towards death." And so uh, he's looking to uh, you know give the give the land to his daughters, but it's also going to affect uh, you know affect the the uh, Cornwall and Albany at the same time. And so uh, uh, so anyway, he, the point he says there, he wants to give the to the, the his dowers. Uh, he he wants to give dowries to his daughters so that future strife may be prevented. And uh, as we go through the play, you're going <laughs> to, we're going to realize he didn't prevent strife, he created it. And so, so uh, uh, there, that's a, in, in some ways, Shakespeare's letting us see this is a dumb decision. All right, so, so uh, when, over the next lines, when he says, tell me my daughter, since now we want to divest both of rule and interest of territory and cares of state, those are all legal, this is a legal ceremony. I mean, he's serious, this is done. When it's done, it's going to be done. And so uh, uh, he asked his oldest daughter to speak first. So, uh, so here's what Goneril has to say. Sir, I love you more than words can wield the matter, dearer than eyesight, space and liberty, beyond what can be valued, rich or rare, no less than life with grace, health, beauty, honour, as much as child e'er loved or father found, a love that makes breath poor and speech unable, Beyond all manner of so much, I love you. Now, you could believe that if you want to. And uh, what what Shakespeare does is he inserts the youngest daughter. She's standing aside, and the younger daughter isn't buying it at all. And uh, you know, if if you look at the the character of um, Lear, you know, he, he'd be on the stage. He'd be like smiling a little bit. Wow, this this, this daughter really loves me. And, and uh, Cordelia on the side says, What shall Cordelia do? Love and be silent. She's, she's not buying it at all. Of all these bounds, even from this line to this, with shadowy forests and with champagne's wrist, with plenteous rivers and wide-skirted meads, we make thee lady. To thine and Albany's issue be this perpetual. What says our second daughter, our dearest Reagan, wife to Cornwall, Speak. And so, so uh, see, Lear, Lear's, all right, he's happy with what Goneril's done. He's given her her, her uh, dowry. And he says, okay, Regan, now this is the second daughter. What do you think? And uh, uh, again, to really understand what Regan's saying, we need to look at Cordelia. And we'll have that here in a minute. Uh, so Regan says, I am made of that self-metal as my sister and prize me at her worth. In my true heart I find she names my very deed of love, only she comes too short, that I profess myself an enemy to all other joys, which the most precious squares of sense possesses, and I find I am alone felicitate in your dear highness's love. Oh, I mean, 
that is fake as fake can get. And it, we have to leave it up to Cordelia to tell us. Now, this is about Cordelia. Again, she's aside. She's not speaking it directly to, uh, to her sisters, but she's speaking to the audience. And that is another great genius move on Shakespeare's part. She's talking to the audience, and she's, she's instructing us. She's telling us what she knows about her sisters. Then poor Cordelia, and yet not so, since, I am sure, my love's more richer than my tongue. <laughs> she says, these, these, these sisters of her are really wagging their tongues, but, but she knows her love is more ponderous than their, their tongues. So, so listen to Lear now. Uh, he's ready to speak. He's, he's listened to, uh, to Regan. And by the way, Lear can't hear Cordelia either, just the audience. So uh, Lear says, To thee and thine, hereditary ever, remain this ample third of our fair kingdom, no less in space, validity, and pleasure than that conferred on Goneril. Now, our joy, although our last, not least, to whose young love the vines of France and milk of Burgundy strive to be interest. What can you say, to draw a third more opulent than your sisters. Speak. Nothing, my lord. Nothing? Nothing. Nothing, my lord. <laughs> so, so she's so upset with her fake sisters that uh, she says, I'm not saying anything. And then Lear says one of the most famous lines. We have, we, I, I know uh, I heard this all my life as a child. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. <laughs> And so, so uh, uh, how many of you have heard, nothing comes of nothing? So I, I heard that growing up. Unhappy that I am, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I love your majesty according to my bond, nor more, nor less. So, so Cordelia, honestly, is the, is the daughter that really loves him. And she knows she has a duty to love him. And she responds to that duty. And, uh, uh, you know, Lear is just, he's just really inept. He, he, he can't understand what's happening here. And uh, uh, it, it's really sad. How, how, Cordelia, mend your speech a little, lest you may mar your fortunes. And so, so that's not what she's thinking about at all. She could care less about money. She could care less about having all these great lands. That's not what she cares about at all. And in fact, she's the one that truly loves her dad. Good, my lord. You have begot me, bred me, loved me. I return those duties back as our right fit. Obey you, love you, and most honor you. And she says, you've taken care of me, and, and you've, you've taught me, you've, you've instructed me, and you've loved me. She says, I'm going to do the same right back to you. Why have my sisters husbands if they say they love you all? Haply. When I shall wed, that lord whose hand must take my plight shall carry half my love with him, half my care and duty. Sure, I shall never marry like my sisters to love my father all. Now, there's a lot of wisdom in what she's saying there. You know, the sister's saying, we love you most, we love you all. And what do you think Cornwall and Albany thought at that point? You know, I'm, I'm sure they were embarrassed by it all. And... uh you know, she's saying, look, why, why do my sisters even have husbands if they love you all? You know, how do they feel about their husbands? Well, by the end of the play, we're going to find out how they feel about their husbands. 
and uh, it's not uh, it's not very pretty. Um, but but again, Lear, he's just blind. He's blind to what's been going on in his family, and uh, that's a lesson we all have to take you know, take note of. Is you know, especially husbands and dads. Uh, do we know what's really going on in our families? Do we do we uh, are we you know being fair to every child? Are we playing favorites? You know, th those are all very dangerous things, and believe it or not, th they have implications for nations, and especially when you when you look at royal families, and uh, we we can talk a lot about even serious problems, even with some of the the patriarchs in uh, you know in Israel. But uh, uh, she says, look, she says, when I wed, and the Lord that whose hand must take my plight or my vow shall carry half my love with him. So she says, I'm going to continue to love you. I won't be able to love you as much as when I'm just home with you as a daughter. I'm going to have to help my husband. And uh, But she says, I'll never marry like my sisters. But goes thy heart with this? Aye, good, my lord. So young and so untender? So young, my lord, and true. He doesn't see the truth here at all. She says, I'm telling you the truth. Not everybody in here, not the other two sisters were telling him the truth. He couldn't see it. He couldn't see the truth. And uh, we're going to find out that that's this, the same kind of flaw with Gloucester. He cannot see the truth of his sons. But uh, Lear goes on to say, and he's by this point, uh, he is really angry. And uh, I, I saw this, this play done by the Royal Shakespeare Company in uh, uh, Stratford-upon-Avon. And the, the uh, or maybe I just saw the film of it, but uh, the actor was an older actor, and he was dynamite. He was a dynamite actor, and, and at this point, he is just raging mad. Let it be so. Thy truth, then, be thy dower. For by the sacred radiance of the sun, the mysteries of Hecate and the night, by all the operation of the orbs, from whom we do exist and cease to be, here I disclaim all my paternal care, propinquity and property of blood, and as a stranger to my heart and me, hold thee from this for ever. The barbarous Scythian, or he that makes his generation messes to gorge his appetite, shall to my bosom be as well neighboured, pitied and relieved as thou, my sometime daughter. And so, so essentially what Lear does in this rash, fit of anger, he disowns and banishes Cordelia. And uh, th that, that just incenses some of the other people at this meeting. And the number one person that he had senses or, or uh, just kind of dri drives crazy with this is Kent, who is his noble service. And this is what Kent says. Good, my liege. I mean, he just, he just can't even believe what he just heard. And then, then Lear responds to him. So now, now everything shifts uh, from rage at, at Cordelia to now rage at Kent. Peace, Kent. Come not between a dragon and his wrath. I loved her most and thought to set my rest on her kind nursery. Hence, and avoid my sight. So be my grave, my peace. And as here I give her father's heart from her. Call France. Who stirs? And so... so uh, uh, he's really mad, and he's telling he's telling his 
closest associate, you know, you better shut up. You better be quiet or you're going to be in big trouble. Call Burgundy, Cornwall and Albany with my two daughters' dowers, digest the third. Let pride, which she calls plainless, marry her. I do invest you jointly with my power, preeminence and all the large effects that troop with majesty. Ourself, by monthly course, with reservation of a hundred nights, by you to be sustained, shall our abode make with you by due turn. Only we shall retain the name and all the addition to a king. The sway, revenue, execution of the rest, beloved sons, be yours, which to confirm this coronet part between you. And so, so essentially what, what Lear does here is, you know, he, uh, he takes what the, the, the uh, land that he was going to give to Cordelia and he splits it between the two son-in-laws. Then also, when it says at the bottom of line 140 there, that this coronet part between you. So, so what you really find out is that, that uh, King Lear's favorite has always been Cordelia. And he was going to give her a better portion of land, but he was also going to share a coronet with her or a mini crown. And if you go back into the history about Lear, is uh, Cordelia did rule along with him. And so, so this is the way, this is the way Shakespeare has put it all together in a play. But so he gives her crown to the two son-in-laws. And so, so here you have the daughters own the land and the, the, the two son-in-laws, you know, have the crown. How long do you think that's going to work? And that's what Shakespeare begin, wants us to begin to think. How long do you think that's going to work? And, uh, uh, it's, I think if you have any smarts about you, you're going to realize it's not going to work. And, uh, he hasn't, he hasn't calmed anything down. He hasn't made peace. <laughs> He's actually instigating war. Royal Lear, whom I've ever honored as my king, loved as my father, as my master followed, as my great patron thought on in my prayers. The bow is bent and drawn, make from the shaft. Let it fall, rather, though the fork invade the region of my heart. Be Kent unmannerly when Lear is mad? What wouldst thou do, old man? Thinkst thou that duty shall have dread to speak when power to flattery bows? To plainness honours bound when majesty falls to folly. Reserve thy state, and in thy best consideration check thy hideous rashness. Answer my life, my judgment. Thy youngest daughter doth not love thee least. Nor are those empty-hearted whose low sounds reverb to hollowness. Kent, on thy life, no more. My life I never held but as a pawn to wage against thine enemies, nor feared to lose it, thy safety being motive. Out of my sight. See better, Lear, and let me still remain the true blank of thine eye. Now, by Apollo... Now by Apollo, king, thou swearest thy gods in vain. O oh, vassal, miscreant. <laughs> there goes Berserk. And he grasps his sword. He's getting ready to chop his head off. And then Albany and Cornwall say, dear sir, forbear. You know, so, so in some ways, these guys are maybe uh, shaking on, in their boots, you know. Can you imagine having a father-in-law that wants to cut the head off, <laughs> off his best friend? So, so anyway, Kent says, Do kill thy physician. And the fee bestow upon the foul disease. Revoke thy gift, 
or whilst I can vent clamour from my throat, I'll tell thee, thou doest evil. So, so Kent's saying to him, Lear, you're sick. There's something wrong with you. you don't kill me, kill your physician, because he's not doing a very good job. <laughs> That's essentially what he means there. And, uh, and then Lear says, Hear me, recreant, on thine allegiance, hear me, since thou hast sought to make us break our vow, which we durst never yet, and with strained pride to come betwixt our sentence and our power, which nor our nature nor our place can hear. Our potency made good, take thy reward. Five days we do allot thee for provision, to shield thee from diseases of the world, and on the sixth to turn thy hated back upon our kingdom. If on the tenth day following thy banished trunk be found in our dominions, the moment is thy death. Away by Jupiter, this shall not be revoked. And uh, I didn't mention this from before, but but uh, Lear is really into paganism, by the way. And uh, uh, it says that he lived around the time of the start of the of the Roman Empire, and also at the time of Elijah. And so, uh, you know, he's really invoking the Roman gods here. And so, so now, not only is Cordelia banished, uh, Kent is banished. The people that loved him the most, he has gotten rid of. Fare thee well, king. Sith thus thou wilt appear, freedom lives hence, and banishment is here. So now Kent looks to Cordelia. The gods to their dear shelter take thee, maid, that justly thinks and has most rightly said. So, so he's, he's saying, look, uh, Cordelia, in his pagan way, he's saying, uh, I know the gods will take care of you. Then he looks at Regan and Goneril, and he says, And your large speeches... May your deeds approve, that good effects may spring from words of love. Thus Kent, O princes, bids you all adieu. He'll shape his old course in a country new. So, so that's some really beautiful, be- really beautiful poetry there. And uh, uh, it's just, it's just Shakespeare says just his excellent way of, of ending. Uh, Kent's speech for this point and uh, he, he shows up later in the play and we'll talk about that when we get there now this next scene is uh, it's, it's not a separate from the act one scene one it's just it, it's a different um, uh, aspect now kind of like uh, Lear's rage is kind of done or maybe at least it's subsided a little bit but essentially this next section has Gloucester um Burgundy in France, and and then uh, you still have Regan and uh, uh, Goneril hanging around, and then Cordelius is obviously still there as well. And so I'm I don't think I'm going to be able to get finished with all of this, but I'll see how much I can get finished. So this is page ten, and Gloucester comes back in, having missed a lot of the discussion that we just went through. He's got Burgundy in France with him. And, and here's what he says. He says, here's France and Burgundy, my noble lord. Then Lear speaks. My lord of Burgundy, we first address towards you, who with this king hath rivaled for our daughter. What in the least will you require in present dow with her? Or cease your quest of love? And so um, Burgundy is be- going to begin to speak next. And uh, we, uh, we, we really begin to realize we can be really thankful that Cordelia doesn't marry him because <laughs> because basically he wanted her because he wants the money. And uh, 
or the, the, the riches. And Burgundy says, Most Royal Majesty, I crave no more than hath your highness offered, nor will you tender less. Right, noble Burgundy, when she was dear to us, we did hold her so, but now her price is fallen. Sir, there she stands, if aught within that little seeming substance, or all of it with our displeasure pieced, and nothing more may fitly like your grace, she's there, and she is yours. Burgundy says, I know no answer. Will you, with those infirmities she owes, unfriended, new adopted to our hate, dowered with our curse and stranded with our oath, take her or leave her? Notice Burgundy Burgundy goes on to say, Pardon me, royal sir, election makes not up on such conditions. So what he's saying, look, there's no dowry, so the conditions for me to want her are over. Then leave her, sir, for by the power that made me, I tell you all her wealth. For you, great king, I would not from your love make such a stray to match you where I hate. Therefore beseech you to avert your liking a more worthier way than on a wretch whom nature is ashamed almost to acknowledge hers. And so he's really, really condemning his daughter Cordelia to, the, to her next option, who is the king of France. And even France notices it, and he says, This is most strange, that she whom even but now was your best object, the argument of your praise, balm of your age, the best, the dearest, should in this trice of time commit a thing so monstrous to dismantle so many folds of favor. Sure her offense must be of such unnatural degree, the monsters it, or your forevouched affection, fall into taint which to believe her must be a faith that reason without miracle should never plant in me. Now, at this point, Cordelia, uh, she stands up to defend herself. I yet beseech your majesty, if for I want that glib and oily art to speak and purpose not, since what I well intend, I'll do it before I speak, that you may make known it is no vicious blot nor other foulness, no unchaste action or dishonoured step that hath deprived me of your grace and favour, but even for want of that for which I am richer, a still soliciting eye, and such a tongue that I am glad I have not, though not to have it hath lost me in your liking. Better thou hast not been born than not to have pleased me better. France, is it but this a tardiness in nature which often leaves the history unspoke that intends to do? My lord of Burgundy, what say you to the lady? Love's not love when it is mingled with regards that stands aloof from the entire point. Will you have her? And uh, uh, he, he goes on to say, she is herself a dowry. And so, so Francis is talking back to Lear and, and almost repeating back his same words. And he says, she is herself a dowry. Burgundy says, Royal King, give but that portion which you yourself propose, and here I'll take Cordelia by the hand, Duchess of Burgundy. Nothing. I have sworn. I am firm. Burgundy says, I am sorry then you have so lost a father that you must lose a husband. And then, uh, if you notice what Cordelia speaks here, she says, Peace be with Burgundy. Since that respects of fortune are his love, I shall not be his wife. So so we, we go on here, and France says, Fairest Cordelia, thou art most rich being poor. Most choice 
forsaken, and most loved despised. Thee and thy virtues here I seize upon. Be it lawful, I take up what's cast away. God's gods, tis strange that from their coldest neglect my love should kindle so inflamed respect. Thou darlest daughter king, thrown to my chance, is queen of us, of ours, and our fair France. Not all the dukes of Watrish, Burgundy, can buy this unprized precious maid of me. Bid them farewell, Cordelia, and though unkind, thou losest here a better where to find. And Lear says then, Thou hast her, France, let her be thine, for we have no such daughter, nor shall ever see that face of hers again. Therefore be gone, without our grace, our love, our benison. Come, noble Burgundy. So, so Lear walks off the scene, goes away with Burgundy, Cornwall, Albany, uh, and Gloucester and their attendants. And France says to Cordelia, bid farewell to your sisters. The jewels of our father, with washed eyes, Cordelia leaves you. I know you what you are, and like a sister am most loath to call your faults as they are named. Use well, our father, to your professed bosoms I commit him. But yet, alas, stood I within his grace, I would prefer him to a better place. So farewell to you both. So um, Cordelia gives him a real good smack across the face, <laughs> and so uh, they deserve it. Then Reagan, notice she's a real smart aleck here. Prescribe not us our duties. And Goneril. Let your study be to content your lord, who hath received you at fortune's arms. You have obedience scanted, and well are worth the want that you have wanted. Time shall unfold what plighted cunning hides. Who covers faults, at last shame them derides. Well may you prosper. So France says, come my fair Cordelia. And then, then uh, we have... In this uh, scene, we have uh, France and Cordelia leave. And then the end of the scene is basically um, the, uh, the, the two, I, I call them wicked sisters. <laughs> and uh, we're going to have to save this for next time. So that's all the time I have for today's program. On our next program, I'll continue discussing and reading William Shakespeare's King Lear. Now you can buy a good used copy of Shakespeare's plays at abebooks.com. You can also uh, maybe find a, a good copy in your local bookstore. And of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to comments at kpcg.fm. You can also comment at my Twitter page. And the title is Shakespeare's Royal Education. So join me next time as we advance our royal education. You've been listening to Shakespeare's Royal Education on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.